0: Hi, this is for the love of film podcast. I'm the host, Scott David Chase. Um, happy Easter if that's something that you celebrate, and if it's not something that you celebrate, then happy Sunday day off. Um, so I like to do this uh, at the end of each quarter, do a little uh, recap of my favorite films of the of the quarter, primarily because it just makes me makes it a lot easier for me. Uh, at the end of the year, when I'm putting together my top 10 film list uh, to kind of look back at what what my favorite films were, uh, I'm not wearing my sunglasses because I'm trying to be cool. I'm actually sitting in my car, and it's quite bright out. And I this is my second attempt at doing this video. Uh, I got about 20 seconds in, and then I dropped the recorder that I'm using because uh, uh, I'm not only doing the video for the for this top. List, but I'm recording the next episode of the For the Love of Film podcast. If you're a fan of movies, it's a weekly movie review, new movie review podcast. It's For the Love of Film podcast. It's on iTunes, Google Play, or you can listen to it directly at fortheloveoffilmpodcast.com. So thank you for uh, indulging while I got through that. I um, also wanted to apologize to the people who... Do subscribe and listen to it regularly that there wasn't not a new episode up this Tuesday. unfortunately, there was a death in the family and then a death later in the week. A friend of mine so um what I'm gonna do is I'm doing this live video right now, uh, and I will do the uh the my top five picks for the first quarter of twenty eighteen and then I'll stop the live video, but I'm going to continue recording the episode simultaneously so that should go up in the next couple days. So if you want to hear the movies that uh, I reviewed this week, um, which the, the movies that I saw in the last week and a half were Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which was not a uh, not a new film, but it was I got to see it on the big screen. So Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, uh, Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, and then Steven Spielberg's uh, Ready Player One, as well as I'm going to talk about seeing Logan Lucky, also directed by Steven Soderbergh. I did not see that in the theater, but on the recommendation of my friend Bob Scammon, uh, I finally got around to watching that, so I'm going to talk about that briefly as well. So, if you want to hear my thoughts on those, after this top five list, any of the ways that I just mentioned, iTunes, Google Play, or for the com. Yeah. So... Uh, a lot of people talk about the first quarter of the year, you know, January and February especially, as kind of being a dumping ground for the studios, um, the stuff that's not very good, so on and so forth. And um, while traditionally I think that has been the case, I think um, the movie studio system is changing and things are happening differently. I There was actually, I've seen quite a few Great films this year already. I um, uh, for this podcast, you know, I've seen thirty-one. I saw thirty-one films in the first uh, in the first ninety days of the year. So that's obviously about an average of about one every three days. And I'd say of the the thirty-one films I saw, at least half of them I liked. I'd say, you know. I, I, I'm expecting a few of them that are gonna be on this list to be on my year end list as well. Obviously, don't know what the next nine months hold, but some pretty strong contenders. So the way I uh kind of I actually had to eliminate some of the stuff I saw this year. I basically my rule was if it was something that came out in a wider release in at the end of 2017, but I didn't get around till seeing it now. I excluded it. Um, I just saw the film A Fantastic Woman yesterday, which uh, won uh, the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar this year, but I just got around to seeing it and was definitely one of the best films I've seen this year, but it's technically a 2017 movie, so uh, I won't include that, and I'm also, I'll be talking about that in the next episode of For the Love of Film podcast so tune in next week to hear my thoughts on that as well as the other movies I'll, I'll see this week but so it had to have been something that was in wide release in 2018 rather than 2017 so um, without further ado and in no particular order um, and these are all films that I have given more in-depth reviews on this podcast so if you're interested in hearing my thoughts on that go back and check out the previous nine episodes from 2018 so far and you can hear my in-depth reviews of these films but my favorite films of the first three months of 2018 were uh Black Panther um you know I go see most of the Marvel movies enjoy them quite a bit some are better than others uh, but this was definitely one of the best um Marvel movies, uh, and also I feel one of the best superhero movies ever made. Um, it is still playing in wide release. Uh, I know it's the third highest grossing Marvel film of all time. It's as of, as of today, it is the 12th highest grossing film of all time. Um, and, uh, but beyond that, it's, uh, it's really excellent film. So I'd say go check it out. Um, Annihilation, which is not It hasn't done super well, but it is an excellent film. Um, I would actually go so far as to say it's the best film that I've seen so far this year. Really enjoyed it, hoping to catch it again in the theater while it's still playing. Um, It is playing in a couple places around here still, so I'm going to try and see it this week. Um, Game Night, which was, uh, you know, an R-rated adult comedy. Um, By adult, I don't mean dirty. I mean for, you know... more sophisticated adult audiences um it's not necessarily a gross out comedy which most r-rated comedies are these days was not expecting it to be as good as it was and was pleasantly surprised um thoroughbreds which uh, i reviewed i believe two episodes ago um that's playing in a couple places still so um it's a very you know black comedy drama but well worth checking out, and Hostiles, which was one of the first movies I saw this year, uh, it's a western with uh, Christian Bale, and um, one of his best performances, and um, one of the best westerns I've seen in quite some time, and I see a lot of westerns, so uh, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, so like I said, I'm going to continue this recording if you want to hear my um, full review of films that I saw in the last week and a half. Um, check it out on iTunes and Google Play. This will be episode ten of For the Love of Film podcast. So, yeah, thanks for watching this video, and uh, yeah. Um, so while I'm waiting for that to upload, um, like I said, it was uh it's For the Love of Film oh, podcast. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, that's that's Facebook doing its thing. So, I'm gonna talk about. Uh, the films that I saw. So I got to, I got the chance to see, um, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo in the theaters. Uh, it was about a week and a half ago now. Um, and it was, uh, a couple things. It, it, first and foremost, kind of, uh, it was, it was my first time ever seeing an Alfred Hitchcock film in the theater. Um, which, Kind of surprised me when I had, when I sat down and thought about it, but, um, you know, obviously his movies are, were made quite some time ago. So, um, in larger cities they play them a lot, but in, um, in New Hampshire, that doesn't happen all that often. Um, F- uh, Fathom Events often plays classic movies. Actually, I'm sorry, it was Turner Classic Movies, I believe. Um, I don't know if it was done in conjunction with Fathom Events, but Fathom Events plays a lot of older films in the theater, which I think is great, but, um, it was also my first time actually seeing Vertigo, period. Um, I had, I knew some of the, um, plot points because in 1990, I think it was 97, I believe, it was either 96 or 97, the band Faith No More had a video come out for their song, uh, Last Cup of Sorrow, which is, a uh, off their album album of the year which was their their last album for like 19 years I believe it is but it was a it was a remake somewhat of uh Vertigo uh with uh lead vocalist Mike Patton playing the Jimmy Stewart role and uh Jennifer Jason Lee playing the female role um one of the things that I was sort of expecting watching Vertigo that's in the video that's not in the film is there's an S&M element in that. And I don't know if it was just the director or whoever wrote the uh, treatment for the video wanting to uh, be funny, make it more interesting. Or the, the the one thought that I had is when there's a shot in Jimmy Stewart's apartment earlier in the film, there is a copy of Swank Magazine sitting on the... Uh, Sitting on his little coffee table, which is interesting um, for for those of you not familiar. Uh, Swank is a gentleman's magazine, uh, although I would the you know much like gentlemen's clubs. I, I would say the word gentleman is used in the broadest sense of the term. Um, it's a it's a it's a pornographic magazine. However, at the time that Vertigo was made. Uh, Swank was not that type of magazine. It is the same magazine because it's gone through several different owners, um, since the film was made, but it was more like GQ or Esquire at the time and did not feature, well, it did have like lifestyle articles. It did not feature, um, uh, nude and sexually explicit pictorials in the magazine. So, um, yeah, I did some research on that, um, it, it was interesting, uh, you know, I know that Vertigo is one of his most well-known films. Oh yeah, uh, b- before I go into that, the other part of it, I was familiar with one particular scene because of, um, Terry Gilliam's film, Twelve Monkeys, where at one point, uh, w- which is an excellent film, um, one of my favorite science fiction films of the last 25 or so years, um. Bruce Willis and Madeline Kahn's characters are in a. They go. They're hiding out in a movie theater that's playing Vertigo. And so there's a scene from the film that's shown on it, uh, on the screen. So, you know, uh, it it deals with the concept of time. It's the part where, uh, they're in the Redwood Forest and there's a cutaway of a tree and it shows a timeline of someone's birth and death. So, uh,. Having said that, um, it was really cool to see Alfred Hitchcock's film on the big screen. I mean, his, his stuff is meticulously laid out and visually very stunning. Um, I, I will say, uh, I know it's, I know it's a film classic and it's considered one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, definitely left a little bit to be desired for me, um, certainly not, not the most believable film of all time, um, and, and uh, I think part of it has to do with the fact that I'm not a big Jimmy Stewart fan. James Stewart, um, I mean, people always refer to him as Jimmy Stewart, but he's always billed as James Stewart. Um, you know, this goes back to my, my uh, sort of disdain for the film It's a Wonderful Life, which I'm sure... Um, there are certain fans of, uh, films that are, uh, gasping right now that I'd say I don't like. It's a wonderful life, but, uh, and, uh, I may go into that in the future if I do a review of holiday movies and et cetera, but it's just, uh, you know, he's sort of my biggest problem with it. And, um, I know he's kind of like the Tom Hanks of his time or vice versa. Tom Hanks is the Jimmy Stewart of, the last 25 years, but, uh, he just annoys the snot out of me. And, um, the character he plays in this is kind of, uh, I mean, the fact that, uh, and sorry if this is a spoiler, but it's a 60 year old movie. So, um, the, the fact that he is carrying on an affair with his friend's wife and there's no, that's never addressed, uh, you know, he's hired to follow his friend's wife to see what she's up to. And he ends up having an affair with her. Um, there is an additional twist in the plot, obviously for those who have seen it, no need for me to get into that, but it's never addressed that he was, uh, screwing around on his friend. And it was even, you know, obviously that it was kind of designed that way, uh, orchestrated that way. But, um, I don't know, I just, I had major, eh, not problem with it, but uh, it seemed odd to me that that was never addressed. Um, uh, again, beautifully shot, I um, really, it was cool to see San Francisco 60 years ago and see what's changed, what's stayed the same, and it, visually it's it's an iconic film, so we would certainly recommend it, just it wasn't something that, um, I didn't fall in love with it. And part of, part of my problem with seeing films that have influenced so many other films, um, after, you know, after the fact, uh, is that I'm so used to the films that have, uh, that owe it a debt of gratitude that unfortunately until while intellectually, I can know that, um, uh, I just don't get the same enjoyment. I saw animal house for the first time in the last five years. And that really kind of, uh, it was disappointing to me um, because I've seen raunchy comedies that clearly owe a debt of gratitude to that, but uh, to me are funnier. And comedy of all genres of film, I think ages the worst because uh, our cultural sense of humor shifts all the time. I mean, case in point, the Austin Power films were some of the funniest films, you know, when they came out 20, 20 years ago. And uh, they're pretty much unwatchable to me at this point. Um, you know, uh, Borat, uh, Sacha Baron Cohen's uh, uh, social commentary thing is, was huge a decade ago when it came out. And it becomes be, because comedy movies, I feel like catchphrases get thrown around so much that we just in general get sick of them. So, uh I think that's part of the problem with comedies aging. But anyways, I I did enjoy Vertigo. I just didn't fall in love with it. I'd give it a solid 7 out of 10. Um I'm sure Hitchcock fans probably hold it higher. Um it's definitely not my favorite Hitchcock film. I, that still would be Psycho, but uh Yeah. I enjoyed seeing it on the big screen and I'm hoping to see more Hitchcock films on the big screen. The next film that I saw was, uh, Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, which, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Steven Soderbergh announced his retirement and, um, he was retired for three or four years, I believe. But, uh, last year, the film uh Logan Lucky came out and that that was the first film that he made since his retirement. I didn't get to see it. I was on my I, I went on a cross-country trip, which I've talked about before last year when it was playing and I I only saw a couple movies uh in the month and a half that I was on my trip, so I missed it. But um I did get to see Unsane. I was looking forward to it. Steven Soderbergh is one of those guys that um I've enjoyed almost all of his films. He's probably most well-known, uh, if you're not immediately familiar with him, he's he directed uh, the Oceans trilogy, uh, the Oceans 11, 12, and 13. He's not directing the upcoming Oceans 8, but he is, I believe, an executive producer, as is George Clooney and Matt Damon. But So this movie, and I didn't know the gimmick with Unsane beforehand, but I found out afterwards... So it's a a horror film, sort of a, it it, it was very cheaply done. I mean, nobody knew he was working on it, but the entire film was shot on an iPhone 7. And it looks like it was shot on an iPhone 7, which is quite an accomplishment, but um, it it doesn't look great. It doesn't look terrible. It looks like a student film, um, which, you know, would be fine if uh, a novice had made this, but he's one of the most accomplished directors working today and um i mean the, the it is a psychological horror film that it kind of worked for the first half when you really weren't sure what was real and what wasn't and then it kind of falls apart in the second half when you realize most of what is ambiguous is not ambiguous and it's all very matter of fact cut and dried Um, the biggest problem with it is the lead actress who, whose name escapes me right now. And, you know, if I were, if I had been at all interested in pursuing anything else that she had done, I would have, uh, it would have registered with me and I'm not even going to bother looking it up right now. So, uh, uh, she was just gave a very unconvincing and, um, unrelatable performance. Uh, that was the thing. I mean, it's all hinges on her and the actress that he chose. Um, just, it didn't work. It, it was also strange to me because it was mostly unknown actors, um, which is fine, especially for what he was trying to do. But then I don't understand why he used some known actors. I mean, Jay Farrow, who was on Saturday Night Live uh, a year and a half ago, Uh, has a very large role in it and obviously being on Saturday Night Live he's at least familiar and then there's you know one of Steven Soderbergh's regulars Matt Damon has a cameo in it which Matt Damon's one of the most recognizable actors in the world and yes if you're putting him in a normal movie that's fine but if you're putting him in a movie that is supposed to have sort of an air of uh, realism to it, it it just completely pulled me out of the out of the film. Also, Robert Kelly, who's a stand-up comedian, who might not be immediately recognizable, but some people may know him for stand-up work. Some people may have seen him. He, has a, he had a recurring role on Louis C.K.'s Louis television show, playing Louis's brother. Um, he plays a cop in this, so it's just, it was kind of ridiculous. Also, the fact that, um, um, and this is not, uh, it's not me attempting to fat shame anyone. I'm, a, you know, a heavy-set man myself, but Robert Kelly has gained quite a bit of weight. My guess is he's, he's upwards of 300 pounds now. And it, to me, it's just not believable, um, that he could pass any physical examination for any police force at this point. So uh, it wasn't believable at all. Um, Joshua Leonard was in it. Um, Josh was probably most well-known for almost 20 years ago, being one of the three actors in The Blair Witch Project, and uh, gave a great performance in that, gave a very different performance in this. It's tough to say whether or not it was a good performance or not. It was convincing, but uh, the movie was just so over the top and overwrought that uh, you couldn't really give him a you know, he, he was, he was the best part of the movie to me, uh, completely unlikable character, but, um, performance wise, um, you know, he, he gave the best performance and another, another point, which, uh, it's funny, one of the things that stuck out to me that, um, uh, my friend Bob also, you know, had texted me cause we saw it, we saw it on the same day, but in different theaters was, um, there's a scene towards the end where there's a struggle in the woods that's supposed to take place at night. And he said, you know, he, we, he thought we were done using blue filters to make it look like it's night, um, which clearly was done in this, um, so that they could shoot during the day. The, my, my biggest problem, and again, being a film nerd, I noticed it, not everyone would necessarily notice it, but when you're actually at night, when there's low light, the shadows, um, you, you don't see the shadows the same way you do if it's shot during the day, and then filters are put on it, and you can see a bunch of shadows. It, but just doesn't look right. Um, this is a movie that, when I first saw the poster for it, maybe a month ago, had no interest in seeing it. And then when I found out that it was Steven Soderbergh, I was very interested in seeing it, and then after seeing it, was very disappointed in it. So I do not recommend the movie Unsane either to... Steven Soderbergh fans or to horror fans, it was disappointing on both regards. I would give Unsane uh, a a 4 out of 10. Um, But through this conversation that I had with my friend Bob, he was asking what I thought of Logan Lucky. And, you know, I had told him what I just said that I hadn't seen it yet. And he said he highly recommended it. And it was one of those things I wanted to get around to seeing as well. But, so, it was on Netflix, so I decided to watch it. So for those not familiar, uh, it's a, it's a heist movie, um, and it's structurally set up very similar to the Oceans films. However, it takes place in, mostly in West Virginia, so it's a lot poorer. Um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a silly, um, you know, heist caper movie, but, um, you know, the, the, the two main characters uh 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 Adam Driver and uh why am I oh god I'm drawing a blank I can't think of his name he was Magic Mike um hang on I am gonna pull it up because I want to give uh I want to give uh actual references that people can know who I'm talking about but uh, uh here we go um Sorry, I should have had this up before. I apologize. So, uh, uh, Channing Tatum. Thank you. Um, who, who's an actor who has done a lot of stuff that I like, although most of his stuff since becoming a star has not impressed me that much. Uh, but he and Adam Driver have a great rapport together. They play brothers. Um, they're both playing it with heavy Southern accents. Um, as is, uh, um, you know, uh, as is Daniel Craig, um. It's fun to see Daniel Craig play someone very different than James Bond, um, you know, as three people pulling off the heist. Um, Riley Keogh plays their sister. Um, Riley Keough had a kind of a breakout performance in Mad Max: Fury Road, and she's really good in this, um, you know. And and the the film is peppered with small. But really enjoyable performances from the from the entire cast. Seth MacFarlane, who I hate, was in this, um, and he plays a despicable person in this, so it was fine. Um, but he gave a good performance. Katie Holmes it was nice to see her in something. Uh, Catherine Watterson, who uh, has been good in most stuff I've seen, even stuff that's not very good, like Alien Covenant. Uh, she was good in you know Sebastian Stan. Always nice to see him. Hillary Swank and Dwight Yoakam was great as a warden of the prison, and again, not, not a particularly deep movie, but uh, Steven Solberg's films all have sort of a stylistic um, similarity and flow to them, and this certainly had that, but it was nice to see that kind of put onto the uh, the poorer southern uh, uh, aesthetic, so it was definitely something I would recommend seeing it on video, Um I would give Logan Lucky a, a 7 out of 10 as well. And the last movie that I saw, um, I just saw two nights ago, was Steven Spielberg's take on Ready Player One. Um, Ready Player One, it's the second Steven Spielberg film I've seen this year because I saw The Post earlier this year, even though that came out in limited release last year and was up for some Oscars. Uh, it, and and it's kind of it, it's interesting cuz within 3 months two of two very different types of Steven Spielberg movies came out you know this is very much a popcorn movie where that where the post is one of his quote unquote more serious films i'm still thinking about ready player one a couple of days afterwards and uh, usually films like this i don't spend this much time thinking about um, cuz i'm still not sure if I liked it or not, um, I didn't dislike it, but, I mean, first and foremost, I realized I'm probably a little bit too old for the demographic they were shooting for, um, you know, a lot of his, um, a lot of his films are designed at younger audiences, and, you know, I grew up with a lot of Steven Spielberg's films, so it kind of it's kind of sad for me to realize that I might have might have outgrown some of Steven Spielberg's movies. Not 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 to say I outgrew the movies I grew up with, but his new aesthetic um I was just like eh, it's really not for me. Uh basically the premise is it's 2045 and most people spend most of their time in the Oasis, which is kind of an online gaming world um where the real world is falling apart it's i mean they don't go into what happened and i don't know if the book has gone into it further but um the world is in collapse so everyone needs this escape and um you know there's lots of games to be played but there's basically everything that you can do now um amped up to you know the hundredth degree in this in this film and uh You know, most people don't, don't leave their, their, where they're living. They live in these, you know, the, the, the poor people live in these, uh, trailer stat, they're called the stacks there and they, you know, stack six, seven, eight, nine high, uh, basically in junkyards and they're all just connected to the internet. And, you know, I know it's, it's making commentary about how we're all slaves to our, um, Online selves, so on and so forth. And I knew it was going to be, you know, just from the trailers, it was going to be a lot of computer generated imagery. I didn't realize just how much of the film would be completely CGI. I mean, a good 70% of the movie is just computer graphics up on the screen. And, um, and it was more more engaging than most cgi films that i've seen i i've often talked about how i'm not a huge fan of cgi or the overuse of cgi and um but this didn't make any attempt really to blend the real world and cgi um so uh, there there was that it was definitely i mean i do, for for someone who has such a strong visual style in the real world, um, Steven Spielberg, I, I thought it was interesting that he was basically directing an animated film, which I don't know is necessarily a strength of his. And again, I don't think it was a bad movie, but I don't think it was a great movie. Um, you know, I, after I saw it, I read Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone published a uh, list of the ranking of all of Steven C- Spielberg's films from worst to best, and. You know, I, I believe there's 31 of them. Uh, and I had seen the bulk of them. I'd say I've seen 25 of his films. Um, and this, this film was towards the bottom, which is where I would put it as well. But, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the Ty Sheridan, who was great in the movie mud several years ago, he's, uh, he's, he's a young actor. Um, he did a, did a fine job, but again, because it's mostly animated, he was mostly a voice actor in this. Um, uh, Olivia Cook, who was in Thoroughbreds, which is one of the best films that I've seen so far this year, was also passable in this. Um, uh, T.J. Miller did the voice of one of the strictly animated characters, and he has a very distinct voice. And you know, he's he's kind of become persona non grata. And most of the things that he's been involved in the last couple of years uh, because of behavior that he's done outside. And if, if you're interested in that, you can, you can Google that. I'm not going to go into that now because I don't, I don't know the facts on that, but um, it sort of left a, a weird taste in my mouth. And uh, Mark Rylance, uh, who, who has a pretty large role in this, someone that Spielberg has used in the last few films and. He, 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 in fact, uh, won an Oscar for his performance in Bridge of Spies, which I didn't see. It's one of the Spielberg films I didn't see. But there's the character that he plays, uh, James Halliday, who's the guy who created the Oasis. Um, there's something odd or off about the character in this. And um, I'm not sure if he is supposed to be autistic it's never discussed which would make sense for the portrayal and I don't know if that needs to be explained or not but it it was it was kind of a it was a quirky performance uh to say the least um Simon Pegg has a smaller role as as his former partner and uh, you know uh he pops up later in some of the worst old age makeup I've ever seen. You know, Simon Pegg's supposed to be in his 60s, and every time he smiles or grins or anything, you can practically see all the latex cracking around the wrinkles in his face. Um, the other thing that really kind of stuck out to me in it is, because it's very much, you know, it. It's, there's a lot of pop culture references. I mean, I'd say it, it's probably sort of, the, I'd say it's, it's probably the film that has the most Easter eggs I've ever seen in it, which are kind of little hidden nods and references for the audience to other things. And it's sort of by design, but it's mostly obsessed with, uh, pop culture from the eighties and very early nineties. And, um, you know, a a lot of it, including films that Steven Spielberg was responsible for himself, either directly or indirect indirectly. Um, you know, the, uh, Parzival, the main character, the protagonist, when he's in the video game world, drives around in the time machine from Back to the Future and has a, a weapon that he's collected in the games that he can use called the Zemeckis Cube. It's a Rubik's Cube, but clearly named after Robert Zemeckis, the director of Back to the Future, which Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on. But
1: um,
0: And, you know, most of the music is from the 80s as well, uh, but... My sort of argument with that was, so this is supposed to be in twenty forty five so you know sixty years have gone on uh since the eighties were a thing i said it was I said to a friend uh, who was also a someone who grew up in the eighties and nineties. I said it would basically be the equivalent of when we were teenagers if we were obsessed with pop culture from the twenties and thirties. Now, another friend also pointed out to me that. The only reason that they're obsessed with all this is because James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis, is a, is obsessed with all this stuff because that's when he grew up. Um, and apparently they go into more detail in the book about that. Uh, but that's not really explained in the film. And it just seemed odd to me because um, I know having nieces and nephews, even showing them, you know, like the original Star Wars films or cartoons from the 80s, they're constantly pointing out how slow moving and boring they are. So flash forward to, you know, 25 years from now, uh, I I don't think that's going to decrease. I think that sentiment's going to increase more. So uh, there was a a pretty cool sequence where they go into Stanley Kubrick's The Shining uh, in the, the video game. but And I couldn't really tell if they used actual footage or if it was just recreated uh, digitally, but it looked great. I mean, the Overlook Hotel looked amazing. Um, so that was, you know, if it was CGI, it was done amazingly well. If it was, you know, in-camera tricks, it was also done well. Uh, and it, again, it's sort of a, another reference to Spielberg's love of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, they, he, he finished Stanley Kubrick's film AI after he died, uh, many years ago. So, there were things that I liked about it, but ultimately uh, most of the most of the background characters remained just that they weren't really developed all that well. And uh, yeah, it was fun, but certainly not an essential film. It was not something that I was looking forward to all that much. I mean, I'm glad I saw it, but don't feel the need to ever see it again. So, um, you know, like I said at the beginning of talking about it, I don't know that I'm the right audience for it. I think for young kids, up to like fifteen, sixteen-year-old, they'll probably enjoy it a great deal. Um, it was nice to see the Iron Giant walking around and fighting. I'm a huge fan of that film, and you know they used it. Uh, I, I mean, again, being someone who's a nerd and about film and pop culture, I did notice almost all of the the older references and franchises that were. In it are almost all Warner Brothers franchises, which is the film company that produced this. So, um, you know, lots of DC superheroes, no Marvel superheroes, which is fine. But it was, you know, it, it had sort of the element of Who Framed Roger Rabbit to it, which, you know, Robert Zemeckis also directed, where it had the Disney characters and the Warner Brothers characters in it. But uh, it seemed doing like it was a lot of fan service, some of it just for fan service sake. But again, it was a fun entertaining film for what it was uh it's probably more going to be more enjoyed by younger audiences i would give it a six out of ten uh but again i think other audiences younger audiences might like it more so those are my thoughts on the films i saw this week